0: Right now, we are in the midst of a very off-putting presidential election. There is much that is very grievous that is associated with that whole presidential process at the moment. But at the heart of the debate is an issue of corruption, a charge that's leveled by both sides against each other. Corruption is an issue where leadership is manifested. It is an abuse and misuse of power. But corruption is not just found in government, but also the workplace, communal organizations, financial institutions, you name it. Corruption is, uh, is evidence wherever there is authority and power. One might expect that the one place that you would not find corruption is in the leadership of God's people. We would think that that would be an oasis, an exception to the rule. But unfortunately, all too often, even the leadership of God's people are corrupted as well, even religious institutions. As we look at the passage before us today... The Jewish leaders in Jesus' day were incredibly corrupt. They abused their power, and they were unfaithful in the exercise of their duties. The corruption was a basis for the condemnation of temple worship in the time of Jesus. Now, just to give us a bit of review, we are in Passion Week in Matthew chapter 27, That last week before Jesus' death and looking at the events that took place. It's easy to forget that the triumphal entry took place just a few days previous. And then we have Jesus entering the temple in Matthew chapter 21 verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. This was to be a house set apart for the worship of God for prayers. But he said, you have turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus then declared that he would replace the corrupt temple worship with the worship of himself in spirit and in truth, that he would Destroy that temple, and in three days it would be raised up, referring to the temple of his body. Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. But he answered them, You shall see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The... Revelation of the corruption of the chief priests and elders came to a head during the events of Passion Week. At the start of the Passion Week, the chief priests and elders confronted Jesus in the temple, Matthew 21, 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests... And the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? As we look at this portion of Scripture, it's the chief priests and elders that are the primary individuals that are referred to in this particular portion Scripture. And they are always in that order. It's always the chief priests and the elders. The chief priests and the elders. The chief priests being primarily responsible for the spiritual leadership of the people. And the elders responsible both for the spiritual and political leadership of the nation of Israel. And we see these two entities in cohort. And we see them as corrupt. Corrupt. The chief priests were the ones, the chief priests and elders who paid Judas Iscariot 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Matthew 26, 14, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. The chief priests and elders were a part of the crowd that came to arrest Jesus, Matthew 26, 47. In the opening of our text, the chief priests and elders plotted together how to kill Jesus. Verse 1, when, Jesus, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They wanted to see Jesus die, and they plotted, they planned, they thought about how they could achieve that end. They weren't looking for justice. They weren't looking for holiness. They weren't looking for that which is right. They were plotting about how to achieve a dastardly end. That is, the death of the Lord Jesus. The chief priests and elders showed no remorse when confronted by Judas, verses 3 and 4. Then when Judas' his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? Save yourself. We looked at that last week. And how they showed no remorse, no regret over their role in this betrayal of innocent blood and ultimately the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The chief priests and elders were the ones who put forth the accusation against Jesus at the trial. Matthew 27 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. The chief priests and elders were the ones who stirred up and convinced the crowd to ask Pilate to pardon Barabbas rather than Jesus. Matthew 27:20. 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The chief priests and elders were among those who, who uh, ridiculed Jesus as he hung upon the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And we'll believe in him. Even after the crucifixion. The chief priests and elders continued in their corruption. The chief priests and elders paid the guards. To lie about the events that took place at the resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28. It says while they were going behold some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests and all, and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders, they took counsel. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, "Tell people." His disciples came by night and stole him away while he was asleep. Again, they pay off individuals. Now, this time to lie these guards about what took place concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, they say, if you want to follow corruption, just follow the money. Well, as you look at the the, uh, elders and chief priests, the way that they used the temple money was absolutely horrendous. And that brings us to our text this morning. Lessons from the corruption of the chief priests and elders. I will tell you up front, I am scared that I'm not going to even get to my application. I wish I had two hours this morning. Uh, this is, believe it or not, really a fascinating portion of Scripture. There is so much here that it is really incredible, and I think helpful. But if I don't get to the application, I'll get it to it in two weeks. So, you know, hang in there. But let, let's work through this, because it really is an interesting portion of Scripture. The chief priests and elders and their corruption were selective in their obedience to the law of God. That's the best spin I can put on this. They were selective in their obedience to the law of God. That's putting it nicely. In Matthew 27, verse 6, it says this, But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. Now, last week, we saw that Judas had been Paid thirty pieces of silver by the chief priests and elders to betray Jesus. It is that money that Judas now brings to the priests. Notice Matthew twenty-seven three. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. See to it yourself. Now, notice what takes place next. The elders and priests made a carefully planned out decision as to what to do with the money that Judas had returned. If you notice, Matthew 27, verse 7, it says, They took counsel and bought with them Potter's Field as a burial place. They, They had a moral dilemma. Notice verse 6. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. When Judas threw these 30 pieces of silver at them and then left, they had a moral dilemma. What are we going to do with this money? It's blood money. It's money that was given as a result of a bribe, a bribe that they paid, a bribe to kill an innocent man. Deuteronomy says, cursed is the man who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. So this person, Judas, was under a curse. But not only was Judas under a curse but so was the money according to Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 23.18 That was not allowed to be brought into the house of the Lord for a payment for a vow for it is an abomination to the Lord. So the money was an abomination. So they said what are we going to do with this money? It created a moral dilemma. So they came with a a plan. Notice verse 7. So they took counsel together. They sat around and debated what to do with this money. And they decided to buy a plot of ground. Verse 7. And bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. They decided to buy a plot of ground. The purpose of the plot of ground was to provide a burial place for strangers, that is, non-Jews. And the result was that this field would become notorious, verse 8. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. This day meaning the time of the writing of Matthew. Now in their decision, the chief priests and elders revealed the judgment upon themselves and the people. Now let me slow down. And we still need a little more background. So if you keep your finger here, turn with me to the book of Acts. Because I I want to seek to reconcile these, these two passages. Keep your finger here. We're going to be flipping back and forth. So you may want to put your bulletin or something in Acts and in Matthew. Here are the things that we need to reconcile. First of all, Matthew says that the chief priests bought the field. Matthew 27, 7. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. According to Acts, it would seem that Jesus did. If you look at Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6, not Jesus, Judas did. If you look at Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 6, it says, Brothers... The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. If the money that was used to purchase this field was money that was spent by the priests. It may well have been regarded as Judas's. The language in Acts is extremely important. Notice verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. It doesn't actually say he bought the field. It says that he acquired it. That's what he got. He got this field. So the idea here is, what did Judas get from his wickedness? When it was all said and done, this Judas, who was willing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, what did he get out of that? What profit did he get? What was the outcome? What benefit was derived from his having disobeyed the law of God betraying an innocent man, and getting 30 pieces in exchange. What did he get out of that? Answer, death and a field to be buried in. Not something that someone would particularly want, I don't think. Two, Matthew says that Judas hanged himself, verse 5 of Matthew 27, verse 5, and throwing down the pieces of silver, into the temple. He departed, and he went and hanged himself. Acts states that Judas fell headlong, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. Acts chapter 1, verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Now according to D.A. Carson... One long tradition, I quote, one long tradition in the church claims Judas hanged himself from a tree branch that leaned over a ravine, of which there are many in the area, and when the branch broke, whether before or after he died, Judas, Judas fell to a messy end. In other words, yes, it's true, he hung himself, but then according to church history, that, that branch upon which he hung himself broke and he fell. And in that fall, this gushy mess that is referred to in Acts took place. Three, Matthew seems to ascribe the name field of blood to its being purchased with blood money. Notice Matthew 27, verse 8. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Because the... Priests used blood money to purchase it. According to Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, it says that it's called the field of blood because Judas's blood was shed there. Acts one nineteen, And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, akeldama that is, field of blood. So how do you reconcile these two passages? It's rather simple actually, for it is looking at what took place from two different perspectives, from that of the priests and that of Judas. So most likely what occurred was that Judas died on the plot of, plot of ground, which was known as Potter's Field. That is owned by a potter. Uh, that area was, was known for its clay. It was, it was highly sought for uh, the opportunity to make uh, good pottery, and so here was a potter's field, a, a field that was owned by a potter. And Judas, when he went out and hung himself, died on that particular location. So the chief priests purchased the ground for a burial place for Judah, for Judas. It already had been, it already had been defiled. By Judas' death. And what are they going to do with Judas and his body? So they decide to go out and buy the place that is now defiled by Judas' death. Others were not, others who were Jews were not to be buried on that same plot. For they say it is a place for strangers. It was a field bought for strangers. And Judas had in fact died on that property. It was a statement by the Jewish leaders that Judas had no part in Israel. They were saying that Judas doesn't deserve a burial among the Jewish people. What he had done was so heinous. What he had done was so terrible that his body could not even be placed among the Jewish people. He had to have his own plot that would be reserved for non-Jews to be buried upon. Therefore, in this act, they condemn Judas along with non-Jews. They saw the land as defiled. And thus, it was known as a field of blood. For both reasons. It was a field of blood because Judas' blood was shed there. And it was a field of blood because the money that was used to purchase that field was blood money. The money that Judas had. And so what he had gotten for himself was this horrendous burial, if you will. But what we're to see this morning is that in this whole process, from beginning to end, that the chief priests and elders blame Judas for everything that's taken place. And they condemn Judas for everything that has taken place. And they say that what he has done is so heinous that he can't even be associated with With the nation of Israel. And certainly, that money can't be used in any way to honor and glorify God or to serve Him. But what is incredibly lacking is no identification with Judas's sin. What is that to us? What has that got to do with us? They don't own one single. of responsibility for what has taken place. They don't see themselves as defiled. They don't say we can no longer be priests. They don't say we can't offer sacrifices to God. They don't say that we shouldn't be associated with the nation of Israel. They don't say that we should be placed in a tomb that is totally separate from God's people. No, they're quick to see what Judas had done, but not only slow to see, but blind to see anything that they had done. So in the purchase of this field becomes an incredible self-incrimination. A noteworthy one. So that everyone knows, to the present day, to the time of writing, the events associated with this field. Now what I want to do is look at the divine commentary on their actions. Starting in Matthew chapter 27 verses 9 and 10. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on, of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me As it refers to the fulfillment of scripture there is an interesting composite of texts here In Matthew chapter 27 verse 9 it says that that which was written by Jeremiah, was fulfilled. Commentators have a heyday, liberal commentators, with this passage. For the fulfillment is an interesting conflagration of texts. In the book of Zechariah, it says this, Zechariah eleven twelve. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of, Of silver. They went out for my wages. Thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me. Throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced to them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver. And threw them into the house of the Lord. To the potter. Now there it's an interesting thing. There it says I threw it into the house of the Lord. And for the ultimate Potter. Okay, that was the ultimate designation of God. But the passage says it's a fulfillment of Jeremiah, not Zechariah. So, a lot of commentators say, well, it just shows an example of an error here where the wrong prophet is uh, accredited. But that's not the case. That's not the case. In Jeremiah chapter 19, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it. Thus says the Lord, and it's referring to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Go buy a potter's earthen flask, and take some of the elders of the people, and some of the priests, and go out to the valley of the Son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate, the gate to this potted area, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocents. The blood of innocents. When it says that this is a fulfillment of Jeremiah, it's not just referring to a specific account or event that took place. All right, It's a much bigger picture. It's a picture of the fulfillment of all that Jeremiah said about the people of Israel. About the state of Israel, the state of its priests, the state of its elders about the destruction that was coming. Even as the temple was destroyed, so too the temple is going to be destroyed uh, in the New Testament. This destruction was coming because of the shedding of innocent blood. True of Jesus, true of the people in Jeremiah's day. The thought is that There is coming a deserved judgment. And Jeremiah makes it clear that the judgment is deserved by the chief priests, by the elders, and by the people. All of them are corrupt, all of them act untoward, all of them are guilty. Of what has taken place. As foundational to the book of Jeremiah. And an explanation as to how things got so bad in Israel. How did things get so corrupted? How, how did this decline take place? Jeremiah 5.31 gives the answer. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule at their direction. Okay? The priests do what they want to do. The priests aren't concerned about following the true law of God. The prophets say falsehood. And then this My people love to have it so. My people love to have it so. That my people are happy. That the prophets prophesy falsely. My people are happy that the priests are doing what's right in their own eyes. Rather than following the law of God. So everyone is responsible. And then I ask this question. But what will you do when the end comes? What will you do, chief priests? What will you do, elders? What will you do, people, when the end comes? The end Is the consequences of such behavior. The outcome. Of failing to subscribe to the law of God. And the outcome and the end being God's judgment. God's judgment. So here let me quickly move to some application. First. The blood of Jesus did not simply come upon Judas. The blood of Jesus did not simply come upon the chief priests and elders. The blood of Jesus came upon the people as well. Look with me at Matthew chapter 27. We're still in the same chapter. The events that are now taking place is the next day. Starting verse 15. Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release from the crowd anyone prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He knew that Jesus was innocent. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather than a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of the, this man's blood. See to it yourselves the same wording of the priests. What has this got to do with me? See it to yourselves. And notice what they say, verse 25. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. We take full accountability. We take full responsibility. We know what we're doing. Put this man to death. Crucify him. And in that act, they were no different than Judas, and they were no different than the chief priests and the elders. They shared in the corruption, they shared in the behavior. They were actually facilitators, according to Jeremiah, because they had put up with these false teachers, false priests, etc., throughout their entire generation. In Acts, you don't need to turn there. In Peter's prayer, uh, excuse me, at Judas's sermon on Pentecost, he says this Men of Israel, Here are these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. You know that Jesus did these signs, these wonders. You experienced them. Some of you were healed. Some of you were delivered of demons. Some of you ate of the food That was given when the the bread was broken. You witnessed, you saw, you experienced. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He stood up and said, You're responsible. You're responsible. You're responsible. It's a sobering passage. I wish I had more time to dot the I's and cross the T's. I wish I could lay out more fully the incremental process, progress that Jeremiah lays out. But you'd almost have to preach the whole book of Jeremiah. But as I was thinking this through, it's just, it's just powerful. It's powerful. We need to understand, here's the application. The corruption of society begins with the corruption of religious leaders. The problem with our society is us. The problem with our culture is us. It's easy to point to others and take no responsibility for where we are. But we bear the responsibility We bear the responsibility of not standing against sin. In 2 Timothy, it reads as follows This know also that in the last days perilous times are going to come. Okay? I I think we live in those perilous times. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Then it's the description of such people covetous, boasters, proud. Man. Think of our leaders. Covetous, boasters, proud, saying, I can do it. All these things. Blasphemers, disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth speakers, false accusers, incontinent fears, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high minded. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. It's interesting the solution that's given in Second Timothy for the condition. The solution, according to Second Timothy, is this, Second Timothy four, one. I charge you therefore, because this world is so corrupt, because things are so bad. That's characterized by two bookends. Loving yourself more than others. Loving and then loving pleasures more than loving God. I charge you therefore in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Who is the judge of the living and the dead. By his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The problem is going to be that the people, as in Jeremiah's day, when it said that they wanted it to be so, that the people of God have chosen to reject the Word of God. Why? They will not endure sound doctrine But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They don't want to be convicted. They don't want to repent. They want preachers to tell them that the way they live is fine. There's nothing wrong with sin. There's nothing wrong with living inappropriately. You're fine. You're doing great. Just pat people on the back and tell them that God loves you and accepts anything that you want to do. What results is a morally devastating impact on the culture and society. What is Terrible about the day and age in which we live is our religious leaders. Our religious leaders that are telling us that what is the most important thing is policy over character, government over morality. The most important thing in this election is prosperity. Who is going to handle the economy? That is not the concern of the people of God. Matthew chapter 6. Don't be anxious saying what should we eat or what should we drink or with what should we be clothed? Don't worry about that. But the church has decided that it is more important to be concerned about wealth than it is about morality. It's more, concern, it's more important to be concerned about personal security than it is relying upon God for that security. And the church has chosen, has spoken out, has defended the corruption of our society. And when I say that, I'm not picking sides There is equal blame to go around in our politics. You know, we say to ourselves, is this the best we can do? Why can't we have better candidates than what we have? Because we chose them. We chose them. That's who we decided to bring forward. It's appalling when you look at the church and who our national religious leaders have put forward as being the best candidates for us on the basis of economy and security. And we have such things as we're not electing a pope, we're not choosing the Sunday school teacher, these things are irrelevant. They shouldn't be for the child of God. We have a moral responsibility. If the church doesn't speak to the moral issues, what is going to be the source of that voice? Who is going to stand up and condemn what's taking place if we don't own the responsibility things are only going to get worse and worse we can't look for our government to solve the problem we have to look to the church to solve the problem and we have to look to the preaching of the word to solve the problem we have to recognize that it's time to come back to the preaching of the Word of God. And we don't spend church just ten minutes of a half-hearted look at the Scripture and the rest of the time sing praises and adoration and all these other things. It's right to praise. It's right to give adoration. But if it doesn't come out of a heart of obedience, it's an abomination to God. We live in a time in which the church has moved away from the word of God. It is Jeremiah's day. That is what is meant when it says that Jeremiah is fulfilled. And then we can see the outcome in Jeremiah. And we ought to be able to see the handwriting on the wall, as it were, Book of Daniel. Where our nation is headed. If we don't start. Standing for morality. If we don't start. Standing for integrity. If we don't start standing for justice. And don't sell out. To prosperity. And security. For what was God's judgment upon israel they looked to egypt they looked to egypt they looked to this foreign nation to keep them safe rather than to look to god what was god's judgment upon the nation of israel they gave themselves over to idolatry to the making of of these gods for prosperity's sake For the money that was to be had. Judas sold his soul. For 30 pieces of silver. We have to understand. That corruption. Starts. With the people of God. We bear a responsibility. It starts with our own personal transformation. Our own commitment. To upholding justice and righteousness and holiness, of loving God more than loving money, of loving God more than loving security, of being willing to stand up and oppose the abuse of power which is the essence of corruption, however that power is being abused. It's a power powerful passage as you look at it and you look at it in the whole light of Jeremiah, may God give us strength. Strength and humility to accept our role in this. When I'm saying our role, I'm talking about the church. The church in the big view of things. How our religious leaders made conscious decisions, even in the primary, when there were some better alternatives than what we have now. Made decisions based not on moral issues, but other issues. Uh, saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, selective obedience Let's pray. Our Father, help us Help us as a nation, help us as a people of God. First and foremost, I pray that you would give us a love for your word. Uh, Lord, that we would want to hear your word. That Lord, we, we would not flee from it when it convicts us. That rather than want to silence the preaching against sin, that Lord, we'd welcome it. For We want to be a different people. We want to be a transformed people. Lord, rather than being entertained, we want to understand your word. We want to do what's right. We we want people who are going to be teaching us the truth. Lord, I pray that you do a work among your people. You do a work among our religious leaders. I pray that there would be a tremendous revival in our nation. Help us, Lord, to believe that it begins with us, not in our vote, but in our consecration. Oh Lord, may may we be willing to stand and take a stand about what's morally acceptable and unacceptable. May we understand that there is no forgiveness without faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's foolish to talk about apologies and it's foolish to talk about forgiveness when there is no acknowledgement of on the part of the individual that has sinned that I have sinned and I need God's forgiveness. May we never lose sight of the reality of what forgiveness consists of. Oh Lord, help us. Help us. We pray your will to be done. Lord, we accept your will. And yes, we even accept your judgment upon what is taking place in our nation. And, O Lord, help us to turn to you before it's too late. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.